Let's pray together. God, we praise you that Jesus does save, as the words to that song which Corky and Irma just played proclaim. We praise you for the fact that there is salvation, something that each and every one of us desperately desires. Father, we are born into a life destined for the grave, desperate throughout to cling to life. And we find it fully, completely, only in Jesus. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your gift of faith. And Father, we pray that as we turn now to your word, that you would help us to see once again the beauty of the gospel, of what salvation is, of what saving faith is so that we might better appreciate all that you have done for us, all that your word makes clear for us, and that we might live in light of that with confidence as we face tomorrow because we know that Christ lives and that nothing can shake the ground on which we stand when that ground is the gospel. And so God, we pray that you would guide us now as we turn to your word to see the truths that are there. Father, would you keep error from my mouth, Lord, and block it from our ears so that what we hear would be what you desire that we hear, so that we might be made more more into the image of our Savior who is Jesus. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, in 2012, Trinity Lutheran, which is a church located in Missouri and which runs a preschool daycare learning center as a part of its outreach, decided to upgrade their playground in order to better protect the children that they were serving as a part of this ministry. And the decision to rubberize the area that surrounded their playground equipment wasn't easy, as you can imagine, due to the expense that they would incur. But the church hoped to offset their costs by applying to the state for a grant specifically made available to institutions such as theirs for that purpose, specific purpose. And the state had enough money annually to fund 14 such grants. That year, they received about 44 different applications. Unfortunately, Trinity was not awarded the grant. And due to the nature of the process, coupled with the number of applicants, their result raised few eyebrows. However, upon receipt of their application denial, Trinity discovered that they'd in fact been barred from even being considered because they were a church. They were a religious institution. The reality that they were Christians was the grounds for the state's discriminatory decision. Now, some of you may recall, or you might even know, Trinity took the state of Missouri to court, and the decision, the case was ultimately decided last year by the Supreme Court in June. So what at first appeared to be a simple grant denial, in fact, represented a matter where far more was at stake than just a rubberized playground, cashed within the state's Denial of Trinity's application was a decision by government to discriminate against Americans based upon their religious beliefs. So the very thing that our Constitution protects, a freedom at the heart of what it means to be an American was under attack. And yet at a glance, this case appeared to be nothing more than a disgruntled group whose grant request was denied. Now, in James chapter 2, in verse 14 through 26, which will be our text for this morning, I believe we encounter a situation in which, like this Trinity Lutheran case, just a cursory look could lead us to see our author 
addressing a subject that appears to hold only practical significance, when in fact, a lot, lot more is at stake, far more than just religious liberty. What James is going to address for us today in our text is a matter of life and death, church, life and death. And so with that said, if your Bibles are open to James chapter 2, let me invite you to follow along as I read, beginning with verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14, our author writes, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and set them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, I want to begin by simply stating what is at stake. What is at stake? For those who may be wondering and are like I initially was with regards to that Trinity court case, I want to make clear from the outset why this passage is of such significance and why it is essential that we rightly understand our author. And so to that end, let me direct your attention to verse 24. Verse 24 there in chapter 2. Just recently I heard a, a friend and theologian admit that while he loves the book of James, he still stubs his toe. That was his words. Stubs his toe on verse 24. Because in verse 24, James states, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, as we've been walking through James and with our series entitled Faith Works, we're primed to see that word faith and affiliate it with obedience, I hope. And that's what I believe James is saying. It's the point that he's trying to make here in his letter. However, we could easily take this verse to mean that we're saved by faith and what we do. Because that's how it reads, right? And understood in this sense, we could preach, I could preach that salvation comes through grace and our works of obedience to God's laws. Giving hearers the impression that by adherence to ecclesial practices and biblical principles, we can secure eternal life. And from this perspective, we participate in salvation, working synergistically with God to bring ourselves to life. And friends, while this might sound nice, it is completely untrue. And not simply untrue like the statement that Maryland's going to be national champions this year, where the repercussions are little more than just lighthearted rebuke from your audience followed by correction. No, no, the belief that we work with God to save ourselves is totally untrue. And if held will result in eternal separation from God. That's, that's damnation. This was the central issue in the Reformation, the principal point of difference between the Catholic Church and all Protestants, that people do not 
contribute to God's saving work. We simply receive it as a gift. And so, returning to our text, what is at stake here in James 2, 14 to 26 is of eternal significance, brothers and sisters, eternal life significance, which is why we have to ask a number of hard questions as we approach this passage in order that we might rightly understand. Hard questions, beginning with James's own. Can faith without works save anyone? And I want to ask you this question before we ask it of the Scriptures. Can faith, church, without works save anyone? No. no. Thank you, Connie. No. And I agree because in verse 14, James asks this very question. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? He goes on then in verse 15 and 16, if you look, to share an illustration of his case, or to make his case, before he concludes verse 17, memorably stating, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is what? Dead. Absolutely. Faith without works is dead. So according to James, faith without works cannot save anyone because it's lifeless. But what about the alternative? Can works without faith save? Our second question. And I'm going to start again with us before we look at the Scriptures. What say you, Emmanuel Baptist Church, can works without faith save? And all God's people said, no, no absolutely not. And James makes this clear again here in chapter 2 by ensuring that faith is present in every reference made to works. In verse 18, James displays his faith by his works. In verse 20 through 23, he points to Abraham as one whose faith was evidenced by his actions. Verse 24, which we mentioned earlier, the toe stubber, while emphasizing works, it still insists on the place of faith. And then in verse 25 and 6, James again holds faith to be essential to life along with works. And so for James, works without faith cannot save. And friends, this is the testimony of all Scripture. The writer of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 declared, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. In Galatians, in chapter 2 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul stated, know that a man is not justified by observing the law. So there's works. Not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law or by works, no one, Paul says, will be justified. He says the same thing in his letter to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in Romans, he expresses it this way. Chapter 4, Romans 4 verse 5, however, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, James is clear. The writer of Hebrews is clear. Paul's clear, and so is the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the prophet declares, See, he's puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. And so, church, the testimony of Scripture is clear. People cannot save themselves by good works without faith. Neither can we be saved by a faith devoid of of good works. And so at this point in our examination of James 2 and in light of the question regarding eternity, 
we can safely say that to be saved or to have hope that when you die you're going to live with God forever, one must have faith and works. But what's faith? And, and, and what is works? And are the two different things? And I believe these are crucial questions for us as we continue. And so let's first address what is faith? What is faith? And so often we use this word in church and I believe we assume too much. Now, I don't want us to do that this morning because of the significance of faith to salvation. So what is saving faith? And before we know what it is together, I believe we need to see, according to James, what it's not, what it isn't. And so first of all, faith is not knowledge about God. Faith is not knowledge about God. Look back with me to verse 19. Here in verse 19, James is addressing someone who claimed to have faith but whose life didn't measure up. In other words, this person talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. They knew all the right words to say so they could carry out those Sunday morning, Sunday school hour conversations about living for Jesus, brother and sister. But come Monday, their lifestyles reflected the values of those in the workplace that they found themselves in. And so James calls them out. He states, you believe there's one God. Now this belief reflected that of the Shema declaration of God's people, of God's character as revealed to Moses and recorded in Deuteronomy 6, which as I'm sure you remember, declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this understanding of God's nature stood in sharp contrast to all the other gods of the peoples whose lands the Israelites would come to possess. It marked Yahweh as distinct from all other gods as he later declared through his prophet Isaiah, I am God, there's none like me. I am God and there is no other. And here, James's opponent claims to believe in Yahweh, for they, they know God as he's revealed himself. However, James goes on and says, good, I'm glad you do. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, just because you know about God doesn't mean that you know God. Faith isn't mere mental assent to facts about God. It isn't an intellectual exercise, although it does exercise your intellect. Faith isn't knowledge about God. And friends, I would hope that this first point stands to reason for us. Is there are a host of things in life which we have knowledge about, but this understanding is nothing more than that. Nothing more than that. For example, I have all manner of understanding about Islam or Mormons or Hindus for that matter. But that doesn't mean I belong to those groups. And just because I have understanding about something doesn't mean that I'm a part of that group. All right? Faith isn't simply knowledge about God, nor is faith feelings for God. Faith is not feelings for God. And I believe that James addresses this misunderstanding in the course of his illustration that's contained there in verses 15 and 16. So let me show you why. You notice there, verse 15, 16, James writes, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Now, I think James is setting up a scenario here in which the emotions are central. We have this family Facing a crisis, this brother or sister in the language of the New Testament literally is naked with no food. Now, I don't care how dysfunctional your family may be, you can't look upon a scene such as James is describing without emotion. And that's what these characters display in their response, which James records with these words, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm, well fed. And this person here in this example clearly feels for those in crisis. However, their sentiments don't result in much more than an articulated concern for their family. And that's the point, right? That's the point. Faith isn't just feelings for God. And yet, friends, how often is that this is all we associate faith to be? 
And so as a question for us to consider this morning, how many of us, as you look back on your faith journey, how many of us, as you look back on your life and your faith journey, find its source in an emotional experience? A Billy Graham crusade where we walked the aisle as George Beverly Shea sang movingly, just as I am. Or a church aisle we walked as the congregation sang, I surrender all. Now, how many of us found faith in a crisis, say, following the death of a loved one or an illness? Or, or what about a moment of deep, deep conviction brought about at the end of a service where a message has been all about sin and, and, and salvation and damnation and hell and everyone's heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and what I needed to do was to get right with God because I felt just awful about myself. I felt filthy. How many of our faith journeys began with an emotional experience and then afterwards, as we put distance between that moment and the present, that sense of, of security, of salvation, of Christianity dwindled because we just didn't feel saved any longer. Can you relate? Unfortunately, I feel there are many in our American church culture for whom faith is almost exclusively emotional. It all depends on how you feel. And I believe that this fixation on sentiment is reflected by the exaggerated role that music plays in worship, along with a host of other theatrical things like lighting and stage props that we view as essential to corporate gatherings. And friends, I hope, I hope we can see the danger of such misguided notions because besides being unbiblical, I'm just setting that to the side for a moment, if, if how I feel determines the authenticity of an experience, then what do I do when the emotions are gone? How do I evaluate between differing experiences. Is the most real, the most visceral? And such dependence on sentiment, I believe, is why we have such attrition in our churches. We'll put on this event with the goal of sharing the gospel and, and leading men and women to decide to follow Jesus. We'll organize our service such that the call to commit comes during the moment when a speaker has just made a stirring emotional appeal. Now the band is playing this tune in the background. And so we're sharing the same types of techniques as you'd see used at a Greenpeace or Amnesty International fundraising concert or a political rally for that matter. Praying on emotions. People are moved to feel strongly about something. In this case, it's God. And through decisional evangelistic techniques, we're directed to sign up and follow Jesus. We're even baptized in some instances before we know what's happening. And then come Monday morning, we wake, over, wake up after this holy hangover and we wonder in the days, what in the world did I commit myself to on the weekend? Good gracious. And then I get phone calls from those crazy people trying to find out where I'm at. Friends, faith is, is not merely feelings for God. It isn't simply knowledge about God and faith is not obedience to God. Faith is not obedience to God. And I believe we've already seen this together in weeks past. If you've been with us in chapter 1, in verse 18, we saw how James differentiates faith from obedience when he declares that God chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. For James, salvation is a work of God brought about through the heard word of truth. That's the gospel. And this justifying work is totally independent of any acts of obedience to the law by the individual and therefore cannot be equivalent to faith. Now, that said, for those who are tracking with me, we ought to have concern faith as others might want to wave red flags because of a certain toast other verse that we mentioned earlier. 
verse 24, which clearly states, as we read it together, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Further, you might want to look back and point us to chapter 1, verse 21, where James urges us to get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word that's planted in you, which can save you. So here, or verse 21, as with chapter 2, verse 24, we've got James apparently saying that salvation requires obedience. And yet we just said that faith is not obedient. So I'm confused. <laughs> and you should, you should be. We should be. Because this isn't an easy concept to grasp, church. And sadly, I believe that there are many in our nation, the churches across there, who have never clarified this, never done so. And it's for that reason that their spiritual lives are marked by defeat, by fear, and uncertainty as they look to the future. And so what is going on here in James 2? And to answer this question, I'd like us to consider the work that James is describing. So what is work? What is work? We've asked what is faith. Now we ask what is work. And in verse 24, James describes it as that which a person does, which results in justification, or that is with one being declared as righteous before God. And he relates this all to the example that he provides in the previous verses which pertain to Abraham. So would you look back with me to verse 20 there in chapter 2? In chapter 2, verse 20, James writes, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, Many of you probably know that story to which James is referring here occurs in Genesis chapter 22, and it's where God comes to Abraham and directs him to take his son, whom he loved, and go to the region of Mount Moriah there and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And God was going to show him where. And Abraham obeys, and it was this act of obedience, this action of obedience that James viewed as making the great patriarch's faith complete. And so for James, works necessarily demonstrate Faith. Works necessarily demonstrate faith. And I would hope that with all we've seen to this point, both this morning, as well as in that series, the series we're in, Faith Works, that we would all agree that obedience that Abraham displayed worked, as James says in verse 22, together with faith. His, his, Abraham's obedience worked together with his faith. His faith and his actions were working together as he trusted God and he took his son to offer him as a sacrifice. And so in this understanding of work, James is reflecting his Jewish roots because in the Old Testament, their understanding of justification or of one being declared righteous reflected this idea of a court, a court of law, and of one being declared innocent before the judge, by the judge. And it was this, you see this evidenced in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 51. You see it again referenced in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 11. And what's of particular importance here in how this pertains to James's Jewish roots is that the divine verdicts in this understanding, the divine verdicts were always passed and rendered with respect to the actual behavior, the conduct of the individual. And so while a degree, a relative degree of righteousness was always possible and viewed as such by the prophets for human beings, ultimate righteousness or perfection, complete conformity to the will of God, was recognized as impossible, completely impossible. In other words, James, with his perspective, viewed justification or our being made right with God through this lens whereby our conduct reflected a God-determined reality. The reality in this case is faith, which God gives by His grace and is then demonstrated in works. So, 
doesn't this mean then that faith is obedience to God, that they're one and the same thing? And I believe the answer is no. But to see this clearly, I think we need to consider Paul's letters. We have to consider this theme in the context of Scripture as a whole. And there are two places in Paul's epistles where he, like James, addresses the issue of faith and works and even appeals to Abraham as his exemplar. And we don't have time to look at both, but we're going to look at one because one of them is really quite much quite like the other. And so in truth, we're looking at one. It's Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 9. So if you'd like to follow along, Galatians chapter 3, beginning verse 1, where Paul writes these words. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, or because you believe what you heard. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, there are two points or two things that I want to point out in this text to help make the point that faith is not obedience to God. And I hope that as I was reading, you might have caught what those were. But the first is this. It's Paul's rebuke of the Galatians for believing that they could merit God's Spirit through obeying the law. The apostle is adamant that the Galatians are saved by God's grace through their faith or belief. And the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing their salvation, Came, came not through works or of obedience to God's law, but rather through their belief or faith in the gospel. And so their human effort was of no worth because all that they received came by grace through faith. So first point is that the Galatians did not receive God's spirit because of obedience to God's laws. And then the second is that in Paul's appeal to Abraham, he points out how Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, while James makes reference to that same verse, that's Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Paul does so here without mentioning works at all because Paul is insistent, as he says, verse 11, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by what? Faith. So for Paul, the whole reason that Christ came was to redeem us, set us free from the curse of the law, which is death. So, does this now mean that James and Paul are at odds with one another? In other words, is this a place where the Scriptures contradict themselves? In church, the answer is absolutely not. Here's why. Faith and works are not separate things. Let me say that again. For, for Paul and for James, faith and works are not separate entities, such that to have one is not to have the other. Rather, faith and works and let me make sure that I'm clear when I say works. I'm speaking of obedience to God. But faith and works are two sides of the same coin, such that you can't have one without the other. And, and, and this is the heart of what James is driving at. He's writing here to churches composed of Jews and Gentiles. And so James, like Paul, recognizes the inherent human danger of believing the lie that we can be like God, that we're capable of assisting God 
if you will, in the salvation process. He also recognized the danger of easy believism. That is, of knowing about God, of feeling deep affections for God, of even doing great things in obedience to God, while never having genuine faith in God. And Emmanuel, faith is none of these three things we've pointed out alone. But faith without any of these three things isn't faith either. For, for by faith, we believe that God is who He has declared Himself to be. Meaning by faith, we have knowledge of God and about God. And in faith, we love God. Our affections are moved deeply by God. It is impossible to have faith in God and not love God because God is love. And anyone who knows God will love Him and will love others. Further, we can't have faith in God without living in obedience to God. And so, how then does all of this relate, and in particular, relate to that final point regarding faith, that it's not simply obedience to God. And we've just said faith works. So how does obedience to God differ from faith demonstrating itself through works of obedience to God? And this is huge. Herein, herein lies the key to eternal life. And the answer is motivation. Motivation. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. He wrote, You who are trying to be justified by the law, so that's works, there's obedience to God. You who are trying to be justified by the law have fallen away from grace, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love or faith which works. Friends, for Paul and I believe for James, the difference between obedience to God and faith which works is that the first is motivated by selfish desire. I obey to earn salvation. I obey to save my own skin. I obey and do what God wants in order that God will be obligated to give me what now I deserve. And friends, that's not faith. Faith works out of the realization that God has already given us what we don't deserve. What we deserved, Christ has taken upon himself and he's died for it so that we might have life. Our faith is a gift of God's grace which we receive and then we live out. Our faith works. Why? Because we've been justified. Not so that we'll be justified. And I want to close by reading one final scripture. This is a text that I believe, for those who may still be struggling with this reality, will serve to further illuminate for us this relationship between faith and works that James and Paul are working so hard to establish because it is essential to our eternal life. So hard to establish. And I believe as we read this text that you'll be encouraged both in your faith as well as exhorted as to how it ought to be evidenced in your life. And the passage is in 1 John, Paul, John's first letter, chapter 5, and it begins with verse 1, which reads this way. Everyone who believes, so there's faith. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. So there's works. This is love for God. To obey 
His commands. Faith works. And John says, His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it, he asks, that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, I hope and pray that you believe this today. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. Christ is the only way, truth, and life. There is no hope outside of belief in Jesus. And as we close, would you pray with me that if there is one this morning that's been struggling, wrestling with this reality, uncertain, without confidence facing their future because they've been trying to work it out, the reality is that God has saved us by His grace through His gift of faith. Our obedience is lived out in light of what God has done for us, not in order to obtain something that God extends to us. Would you pray that God would help us to grasp this and maybe open someone's heart this morning to receive this gift by His grace? Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for Your Word. Lord, at times as we come to texts such as this today, it can be confusing. It can be hard to wrap our minds around. How is it that we're saved by grace through faith? And yet we see a verse today that seems to suggest the opposite. But Father, when we see as we set it in the context of Scripture as a whole, when we understand the terms being used in light of the reality of Scripture as a whole, we begin to see that what James and what Paul are saying is one and the same thing. That we are saved by grace through faith. And faith is evidenced in works. Works done out of a heart of gratitude for the salvation that has been extended by grace to us. Faith doesn't work in order to earn or merit salvation. For that would mean that we would have a hand in saving ourselves, which would make us as God, which would mean we wouldn't need you, God. Father, we thank you that you, by your grace, open our eyes to these truths. Father, that it is your word that we turn to in order to understand. Father, as we read and as we study, we pray, God, that you would continue to to illuminate our hearts, our minds, so that we might live in light of these truths, recognizing that that which you have extended to us so graciously, the gift of eternal life through faith in your Son, Jesus, is something that once received can never be lost. Father, that our, our actions which follow naturally, necessarily, essentially, because of faith, are not done so as to earn favor with you or to merit the promise that has been given, but such that if we fail to do so, we lose what we've been given, but rather they are done out of a heart that recognizes and grows in that understanding and recognition of the grace that we've been given. Those works are performed out of a heart that's growing in its deep and rich, abiding realization that we are yours because you have graciously brought us to yourself.
through your gospel. Lord, there is nothing that can separate us from that love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, because we have been saved, because of Christ's death on the cross, because of your grace, we love you. And that love is an action, not merely a noun. Father, might our faith work. Lord, and if there's one here this morning that is, has been struggling, uncertain as to their future, hoping by their obedience and acts of adherence to the, to the truths that we find in your word and of, of the laws that we find in our lands, God, as they've been trying and finding themselves discouraged as they fail, thinking that they've lost what they were almost about to achieve and to merit, Lord, would you help us and have help them this morning to realize that there is no amount of obedience that we could ever do to merit eternal life. That faith isn't obedience to you. Faith is the realization that we are yours. It's a grace gift of God demonstrated by a heart that overflows in its love for you by doing Father, might we love you more each and every day for what you have so graciously given us in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his name.